We know what it mm-hmm. looks like to approach the climate issue as just a person at home trying to make better consumer choices. But let's approach the climate issue as an engineer. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Tom Chi is one of my personal mentors. He is a remarkable man. And he co-founded Google X. Google X is Google's secret research lab. I guess it's not a secret anymore, but it's what Larry Page, the founder of Google, used to experiment with all sorts of different types of emerging technologies. And there's a very remarkable story about Tom that I wanted to share with you guys. There was a time when Larry Page wanted to prototype this augmented reality device, Google Glass. Tom, who was part of Google X Labs, built the first prototype of Google Glass in something like four hours using chopsticks. And it was, it was an amazing, amazing, amazing feat. Tom went on to create many other pioneering works. And today he works as an environmentalist helping bring together scientists who are doing good things for the planet. So in this conversation, I wanted to have Tom share with you some of the cutting edge scientific work he's investing in, that he's talking about, on how we can save the planet. But beyond that, we're going to interview Tom on models for how to dream bigger, how to build businesses that make the world bigger, and to think like Google. So the reason I wanted to interview Tom is this. Every time I talk to Tom, Tom teaches me a new way of looking at the world. In 2016, Tom made a visit to Mind Valley. He got on stage at our auditorium and he was giving a talk and somebody raised his hand. That person who raised his hand was Clement, who would later become the co-founder of Mind Valley's app, Solvana. And Clement said, Tom, what is a good thing that Mind Valley can do for the world? And this is what Tom said. Tom said, look, technology is growing at an exponential pace, but consciousness isn't. He said, today, if you are a terrorist today, you have more power than the terrorists had on September 11, 2001. You could basically, for a thousand bucks, buy C4 explosives, buy a drone, fly it into a building and blow up that building. What stops people from doing it? It's consciousness. And Tom said, and so a great thing for Mind Valley to do is to help elevate human consciousness. And we actually took that to heart. And that became part of what we started incorporating in our company mission. And so this is why I'm such a fan of Tom Chi. He always expands my mind, and I wanted to give you guys a chance to learn from him as well. Recently, we had to rewrite Mind Valley's manifesto in our 20-year vision. And you introduced me to a term called net positive to nature. You said a really good goal that we should aspire to the human beings is to be net positive to nature, to create a world where for every year humans are on the planet, the ecosystem, the environment gets better. And we decided to inject that phrase into our Mind Valley vision. So Mind Valley's 20-year vision now is to help make humanity net positive to nature. And I owe that to you for sparking that idea in my head. Welcome, Tom, to Mind Valley. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So my first question to you is give us an update. What are you up to right now? What is that brain of yours working on solving? Man, I'm working on a bunch of things. So so I launched a venture firm that is investing in early stage disruptive deep tech that can help humanity become a net positive to nature because a lot of our negative relationship to nature comes through industry basically. So we might have a direct experience 
of nature, like we might enjoy hiking or, you know, we might enjoy watching birds or having pets or what have you. But most people's large contribution to their impact in nature actually comes through the things that they buy and consume. So basically through industry. Up until now, and I guess it's still happening right now, we basically said, well, world's broken. Consumers, you need to do everything different. But when so much of the world and so much of industry is constructed in a way that leads to negative consequences for nature, then we're basically asking people to make thousands of decisions a day, which is really a lot. Like really, you've got to go change the industry defaults. It shouldn't be that whenever you buy anything anywhere, it comes in packaging that'll hang around for 500, 700 years, right? That should not be the default. So to the extent that you can go in there and you can change the engine of industry that is setting all the defaults, then you make it so that people can focus their lives on a smaller set of conscious choices, which are just directly relevant to them, you know, day to day, as opposed to having to decide about every package, every product, every single thing Mm -hmm. that you touch right now is part of a collection of industries that are net negative. Let's go back to that phrase, net positive to nature. Yeah, like nature can be sharpened in, at least in terms of what we'd be measuring to being able to go look at air, water, soil, and biodiversity. And when you look at those four categories, then it's really clear, like it's very easy for us to measure when we're going in the right direction relative to, you know, healthier air, healthier water, healthier soil, and, and healthier biodiversity. And air both includes, you know, air pollution issues, but it also includes the balance of gases in the atmosphere. So not having an excess of greenhouse gases of various types, you know, carbon dioxide, F gases, methane, all that. And water includes, of course, water pollution, but it also includes healthy hydrological cycles and functions. So there's atmospheric hydrology, surface hydrology, and ground hydrology. And we haven't spent very much time ensuring that things are maximally healthy in those cycles. We basically looked at them as just resources to exploit, just as we have with many things. But isn't this, like, when I read the news right now, it seems doom and gloom, right? And maybe the news is right, but we have these raging bushfires in California, heat waves in California. The news earlier this week said that the Greenland ice sheet is about to go into an irreversible decline. Do you really think that we can save the planet from global warming, or is it right now really about adapting to global warming? Look, the next couple of decades are going to require some adaptation regardless. The question of whether humanity can become a net positive to nature or not is really a long-term question. There's a lot that we're going to need to do in the next five years. There's a lot that we're going Mm -hmm. to need to do in the next 50 years. During that next 50 years, you know, even if we did everything right, we will still experience a lot of warming and destabilization. But just like anything that requires longer-term investment, then you play for those efforts another 50 years, and you might be on a planet that every year that humanity is around, we have more topsoil. Every year that humanity is around, we have more healthy ecosystems and forests. You know, every year that we're around, you know, the ocean is cleaner. Mm-hmm. But, but how do like, we get there? It's ultimately actually very straightforward because I think the reason that this is so hard, and I think you'll appreciate this at Mind Valley, is that there's a lot of conditioned beliefs and expectations as to how everything should work. Mm -hmm. But if you were to step back from the entire thing and you were to just ask in terms of physics, is it physically possible 
that we could, you know, address the excessive concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? Absolutely. Is it physically possible that humans on the planet, you know, through agriculture could build soil every year? Absolutely. Is it possible mm-hmm. for us to go and draw power in a way that doesn't damage the atmosphere or dam up all the rivers? Absolutely. So if a thing is physically possible and you know that it's desirable, then you step back and you say, cool, how would we actually get there? When you look at a lot of the things that are out there, sophisticated things don't happen by accident. If you were to take apart your computer, your cell phone, and look at the circuitry that's in it, it is highly, highly sophisticated. And it did not happen by accident. It happened by people having a pretty clear sense of what they wanted. They wanted to have portable, high-powered computing that enabled everybody in the world to be able to do more in their lives, right? And you just stay on that vision for a couple decades. When I was a kid in the 80s, I remember taking apart electronics and every single lead, you could see it clear as day. And now you open Mm -hmm. it up, you you need a microscope or sometimes electron microscope pop in there to go look at some of the features that we're able to go design now. And that's because we just decided to be real focused on that for 30 years. Right. And if we decided as a civilization to be real focused on being a net positive to nature for 30 years, think about what comparable sophistication would look like in that skill. We have just begun. And one of the companies that's in my new fund is called Iron Ox. They basically are doing fully robotic agriculture from seed to harvest. And by doing that, they already cost less to grow than outdoor agriculture. And they're going to end up costing two to three times less than outdoor agriculture, but they do it in a way that uses 95% less water, 90% less fertilizer input, no pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides. That's amazing. And this company is called what? Iron Ox? Yeah, ironox.com. But that's an example of us choosing to be better at Uh a specific thing and then digging into it and really going for it. And I guess there was a mold of better that we had pursued on agriculture where we just thought bigger was better where we said, well, hey, you know, people got these small farms. What if they could have huge farms? And what if we allowed people to manage huge farms just by spraying everything all the time with everything? Now we end up eating all that chemistry because we just thought bigger was better. But this is amazing. Like companies like Ionox give us so much hope. What are some of the other interesting companies and projects that you're investing in and helping? Well, if you go to At One Ventures, you'll see six of them. Uh, com. Okay, so everyone go to atoneventures.com. That is the fund that Tom Chi set up to invest in companies which are helping save the planet. This looks so exciting. Now, uh, now this we is click the on stuff portfolio. that I do for things that can be venture-backed. But I'm yeah. also, you know, helping a number of other initiatives. So, for example, I got a grant from the NSF to go build a, a robot to replant coral. And we are a couple months wow. into the project now. We've assembled you know, the engineering team. I'm doing the engineering management on the project. And we went from it doesn't exist at all to now we can swim somewhere and prep a planting site. And we haven't handled everything in terms of the coral management yet, but that's stuff that we're working on right now. And you know we've gotten pretty far in just a couple months of it. So there's some things that I'm doing more kind of from the grant perspective and because those are not venture-backable quite yet. And then there's other things that I'm doing on the policy side. So I've been working with the team to help build a set of policy recommendations to go to the Canadian Minister of Climate Change so that we can incentivize large-scale regenerative agriculture in Canada. 
This is so exciting. Now, I know one of the most interesting projects you were doing is, I remember we talking about this in 2017. I'm curious to, to get an update. So you told me about how you were working with scientists to use CRISPR technology to change the, gen- the genetics of coral so they could survive in plus two degree warmer water so that we could rebuild something like the Great Barrier Reef. Tell us about that. So no genetic modification or CRISPR. It's selective breeding the way that we've done selective breeding with other organisms. You know, it used to not be possible to eat corn because it's like corn is actually a type of grass. It had these tiny little kernels that were inedible. But, you know, through selective breeding, humans bred it for a bunch of generations. And now you have these huge corn cobs with these large kernels. Similarly, we selectively bred dogs and, you know, they're all the same species, so they can still interbreed, but some are huge and some are tiny. And this is the same sort of idea. There's no genetic modification. We are basically trying to selectively breed corals that can withstand the warming temperatures of the ocean because the corals that we have right now without selective breeding are going to be extincted from the planet in about 30 more years. And then wow. we'll probably not re-evolve on this planet for about 20 million years. There's some discussion as to whether it will take 10, 20, or 30 million years, but I'll just say 20 because that's a, a middle average of how long it would take for coral to re-evolve if we were to extinct it. And oh we're on so... a rapid pace toward extinction on it. Because of it, what you want to do is you want to go find the coral, you know, because we're already having these bleaching events. But when a bleaching event happens, sometimes there's 100% wipeout, but every once in a while, you will have a thing where it's a 95% wipeout or a 98% wipeout. And the corals that are still remaining are the ones where genetically, or sometimes microclimatically, but sometimes genetically, have got material in them that make them more suitable to warmer oceans. And what you want to do is you want to take the spawn from the survivors and you want to interbreed the spawn of the survivors. So you have a genetically diverse base. So one of the teams that I work with, a Coral Vita, they just did this with the recent spawn of Elkhorn Coral and created several hundred new genetically unique individuals that are moving toward more heat resistance. Now, oh my once God, you're that able is so to, cool. Oh man, there's so many steps to this though. Like once you get to more heat resistance, because this is not an easy problem to solve, but I've been working on it for a little bit. So... Once you have more heat-resistant coral, you need to be able to produce enough of it in order to go and combat the rate of loss. So the rate of loss right now is we lose 1.2 hectares. So hectares is 100 meters by 100 meters. So we lose 1.2 hectares of coral reef every minute. And the what? And, yeah. So whatever. It's all distributed That's around insane. the world. Right. right it's all right, distributed right. around That's the world. Insane. So it's a little crust here and it's a little, you know, whatever, fan here and all that sort of thing. But, you know, the rate is that much per minute. And the rate that we know how to restore coral is about one hectare per decade. So you can see, like, if we're losing, you know, 1.2 hectares a minute, and it takes us a decade to restore one hectare, we're definitely going to lose that situation. So the reason to build the robot is you basically say, okay, let's breed the heat-resistant coral. Let's do nursery automation in order to go build up a large base of nursery coral. And then let's have robotic outplanting to go massively increase the rate at which we're able to replant corals. And then lastly, since you're doing it through robotic outplanting, you can shift the planting a little bit further from the equator, you know, either further south of the south of the equator, further north of the equator, in order to put those heat-resistant coral into ocean environments that are likely to stay cooler for more decades. Because we need these things to survive for 
another, you know, 50 to 60 years until humanity is able to get to the other side of the hump around its climate issues. And then we'll get to a world where the oceans can more stably cool over several hundred years, because it will take a couple hundred years for the oceans to cool from what we've already done. That's incredible. One of the things I love about talking to you is that when you read about global warming, it sounds like there's nothing we can do about it. We have to accept that we're moving into a, a less habitable world. But you, as an engineer, often have these beautiful models in your head of how we can solve the problem. And I think that positive reinforcement is so powerful. Now, I can see how for some of the companies that you're funding, and again, the website people is at oneventures.com, A-T-O-N-E ventures.com. Click on portfolio and you'll see some of the companies that Tom is funding. But for something like regrowing coral, what's the business model there? Like where would that funding come from? Well, we don't have it yet, which is why I grant funded it instead of venture funded it. I do know that there are countries that are really hurting because of the coral that they're losing. So, you know, Australia, tourism-wise, it's already been material to them. And because of it, they have set aside hundreds of millions of dollars, I think $400 million at this point, trying to go fund different ways of addressing reef loss. And in places like Thailand, they've closed entire huge stretches of coastline Mm. and entire islands trying to go protect their reefs. Because basically tourism pressure, if a reef is bleached and you throw tourism pressure on top of it, then it makes even worse, you know, the likelihood of recovery. If you just have bleaching, well, actually the reef still dies in many of the cases, but, you know, tourism makes it worse. But, but it was estimated that, you know, Thailand was losing at least hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in, in wow. tourism income for the closures that they had done. So people are willing to lose billions of dollars to not damage the reefs more, I think they might pay tens of millions of dollars to actively restore them. To rebuild them. So that's fascinating in the coral reefs. Now, what about global warming? Is there hope to being oh, able yeah. to, to take our temperatures back to the pre-industrial age? Yeah, we know what a healthy atmosphere composition is, and that is uh-huh. 280 parts per million for carbon dioxide. And, what is it now? Uh, it's like 413. Wow. So it should be 280. Is that what it was pre-industrial age? Yeah, pre-industrial revolution. Damn. And now it's 413. Yeah. How can we restore that? Well, at the end of the day, that's just a bunch of mass that's in the wrong place. So you can think of it as a mass transfer problem. I think the reason that we've been so terrible at this is we've been thinking about it as just a awareness Mm -hmm. and political activism problem. And what happens is you put all this energy into a particular awareness campaign or into a particular candidate. And let's say they're even elected. That's fantastic. Some things happen. And then somebody else is elected, you know, four or five years later, mm-hmm. and they change those things. And, and it's just like, imagine the only way that we were fighting climate change was by putting all this energy into something that was turbulent and did not create, you know, additive value creation. When I work on something from the science or engineering side, or when I work with teams that work on something from the science and engineering side, if you invent a coral planting robot, it doesn't get uninvented because a couple years have gone by and a different person is elected, right? So I think right. you know there are places where we could have been putting our energy where year by year, all that passion and focus would have been additive. And instead, mm-hmm. we've been putting all this passion and focus into dealing with climate issues into something that keeps on twisting and turning with each new administration. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that we shouldn't do that at all. I'm just saying that that can't be the only way that we go after this stuff. 
and that we should really focus on things that are collaboratively additive over time. And what would those things be? So if you think about the atmospheric issue, like so we basically have a trillion tons of carbon dioxide in the wrong place, right? And if you start to think about that as a simple mass transfer problem, there's a trillion tons of stuff mm-hmm. that's there that's supposed to be in some safer, you know, mm-hmm. ecologically sound form down here. Then you can start working on programs and projects that go address that. And, you know, the whole reason for the, the proposal work to Canada is so our regenerative agriculture is a great way to bring a bunch of carbon back out of the atmosphere. Massive tree planting is a great way to bring carbon back out of the atmosphere. You know, protecting and restoring wetlands like mangroves and other wetlands that we have plowed over or developed or prevented, you know, the natural hydrological cycles from happening. That's a huge way to go and draw down more carbon. And also just not doing things like clearing everything for palm oil, you know, burning down the Amazon to plant soybeans. So these are some, you know, large brushstroke things that get into hundreds of millions or billions of tons of sequestration or avoided emission potential. And we need to just get into it. We can't be, you know, continuing to say that the level of sophistication of the argument is, is it happening or not? Remember what I was saying before about the sophistication of the, of the right. chips that are in here. Imagine the physicists, electrical engineers, you know, all the sorts of folks in the 40s were kind of like, hey, we're trying to make more sophisticated computers, but we're going to do it by trying to go and lobby the government to vote for different people. That wouldn't right. add up to anything over time, right? But if you actually go and look at the thing as a mass transfer problem, or you look at it in terms of, well, what does it look like for us to add 10 billion trees a year instead of remove them. Then you can start working on that as a clear additive problem that every year that you keep pushing at it, you are concretely better at it. You know, like when I was in Kuala Lumpur, I also talked about the tree planting drone company. And now not only do they plant trees, the drones are now able to do a huge variety of environmental maintenance tasks as well. We know what it looks like to go, you know, try to approach the climate issue as a politician. We know what it looks like to go try to approach the climate issue as an activist. We know what Mm -hmm. it looks like to approach the climate issue as just a person at home trying to make better consumer choices. But I love the idea of saying, let's approach the climate issue as an engineer. Let's go approach the climate issue as a scientist. What do those people allow us to do that we weren't, you know, able to completely get done with just activists, with just artists, with just politicians? And look, why weren't those folks doing it before? Well, it's because it was positioned as if it was a, you know, walk around and protest with a sign thing. And engineers are not particularly better at that than anybody else is, right? So you're not going to particularly attract engineers to it. And if you did attract them, they wouldn't be doing any engineering. They'd just be walking around with a sign. If we basically open the full capacities of humanity, including things like engineering, into this problem, then we get very different outcomes. We get a technology where six drones can plant a million trees in five hours. But like, that's the sort of thing that an engineer creates with a couple years of effort. That's interesting. So a question, Nana here asks us an interesting question. Can we also genetically engineer trees so they grow faster? You can, but actually the most carbon holding capacity in an ecosystem is the climax ecosystem that is naturally supposed to be there. 
So in ecology, then let's say you start with bare earth. And after a certain amount of time, that land will go through a series of what's called ecological successions. So it might start with, you know, quick growing grasses, small shrubs. And then after a little while, then, then that improves the soil, creates some shade, lets some more things come up, including some larger trees. And now you have some scattered trees. And then after a little bit more time, then you get taller trees and greater density. And there will be a point where that, you know, climate or microclimate, that little area hits its kind of maximum gross biological productivity, like the highest gross biological productivity that it can, given how much sun, how much moisture mm. is broadly available to that area in the world. And that is the climax ecological community for that area. That's the definition of that term. Wow. The best thing is non-genetically modified climax ecosystem communities. So you don't need to genetically modify in order to store the most carbon. You I get see. the most carbon by, by having the healthiest ecosystem. The longest term carbon storage, because the ecosystem I see. itself by being healthy has all these checks and balances as a thing starts to come out of balance. If it's a healthy ecosystem, it'll try to push it back into the balance. How many trees would we have to plant to pull out all the excess carbon dioxide from the air? About 500 billion. 500 billion. Okay. And this, this company's is exactly goal is to plant how many? Our goal is the number. So 500 billion. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. How many trees are they planting a month? Well, the thing is, is that we plant when customers pay us to plant. So we have the ability to go plant, you know, at a rate of more than we could easily come up to a billion a year or more. It's just that this gets way into the weeds. But like we have the slow B2B sales cycle where we're like, hey, we have this amazing tech. And we're like, cool. Well, we're already paying to plant trees. Like, you know, what does your thing look like? And then we, we typically need to pilot with the folks, you know, on 50 hectares or something. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And then in the next growing season, then they do a larger contract and a larger contract. I see. So but it takes a while. Well, yeah. Now, in the process of doing this, we are... Because you could say, well, look, each new B2B sales cycle is kind of like a, well, you got to go start the process over again. But sure, on that sale. But every time that we do a new project, we keep on improving the tech. And the core mm. tech that keeps improving is something that's truly additive at the core of this, right? Like compared to a couple years ago, we have way more capabilities. We can now fly over the landscape and identify every important species and exactly where it is on the landscape, plants and animals. Wow. We are is now it? able to do different sorts of precision ecosystem management. So there's invasive species that are starting to take over, then we can use agricultural vinegar to go kind of stamp them out. But if you want to plant 500 billion trees, is there space for this? Oh, there's more than enough space. Actually, really? humanity has already cut down something like two and a half trillion trees. Wow. And so, so 500 billion is, is all we need relative to two and a half trillion. You're saying there's more than enough space for this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, what does it cost to plant a tree? The more you invest in the tech, the cheaper and cheaper it gets. So, pennies. Pennies? So, for basically less than 500 billion, we could save the world from global warming. In that range. It's not crazily more than that. Wow. So, that's really, really, really exciting. That's really promising. For less than 500 billion, we can solve global warming. Well, and the thing is, is that you know me and you remember me talking about this a couple years ago, and yeah. I can tell you about all these material improvements that have happened since then, which will not erode away. Like once the algorithms and robotics are developed to go handle 
this type of ecosystem, that type of ecosystem, this set of 100 species, that set of 100 species. Right. And we've been massing it up in terms of how many species that were skillful at planting in an ever-growing set of ecosystems. Those sorts of gains, you don't lose them. This just seems crazy to me. I'm having a hard time believing this. The U.S. military budget is $721 billion, Okay, that's the U.S. military budget. You're saying for one year of the U.S. military budget, we can plant 500 billion trees using drones and completely end the dangers of global warming. Yeah, that's right. Wasn't that true before easy? we... Well, here's the thing. Well, you're saying it's that easy, but that wasn't true before we actually started working on this technology, right? Wow. Like the statements that you're saying right now, imagine you were a person in the 1950s standing next to the first computer. You're like, are you telling me that in 20 years that like something that fits on a desktop instead of this whole room is going to have 10,000 times more power? No, that's crazy. Well, similarly, like if you scoot back to 10 years ago and you said, look, there's a rate at which we know how to plant trees. And that is basically humans with little shovels and things in their satchel. And then I, and I told you, oh, 10 years from now, we're going to be able to plant 10,000 times faster using a way smaller thing that's way cheaper. It would sound crazy until you just get on it. The team has been on this for about six and a half years, and they've gone from a world where that was not a possible thing you could think or do to a world where it's like, oh, well, there it is. And now it's in a documentary and we're actively planting for dozens of clients. And we would love that to be way more clients. And we would love for large government clients to come in and ask us to plant $5 billion So is this company basically on your portfolio for At One Ventures? Yes, also in my portfolio. Yeah, if there's any high net worth individuals or family offices or people that run foundations or funds of funds and you want to invest in us, we're still open to be invested in. What is the minimum investment that you guys are looking at? At least a million so that's okay. why it's probably not just for anybody because you Got need it. to not just be an accredited investor, you need to be a qualified investor. This is not my rules. These are the SEC rules. Which is the drone? Is that Dendra system? Dendra system. Amazing. The entire portfolio plus all the projects that I work on beyond that are kind of in this mold, which is like, I what see. is the core technical innovation? What is the place where we can additively improve humanity's capability of relating to nature differently? Like right now, we can relate to coral reef restoration by being able to restore one hectare in a decade. And what if we could restore one hectare in a day? What if we could restore one hectare every hour? Now we're starting to get into the range that we are beginning to compete with a world where we're losing one hectare a minute. It seems very daunting to plant 500 billion trees. That's because we're used to a technological approach, which is people with little satchels of saplings going around with tiny shovels and being able to plant, you know, maybe one tree every 90 seconds. And then, you know, something like this plants about 100 times faster. It plants 120 per minute. 120 trees per minute. Okay, so people are asking, people are getting really excited here. People are asking, how can we invest? How can we support this? I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing companies like Tesla see their stock just skyrocket. I hope that all of these are the future Teslas because just like Tesla, we are making an additive major engineering improvement through the efforts of the teams. Absolutely. And I think the reason why Tesla stock is skyrocketing is because people see that Tesla gives so much hope for the planet and people care about this right now. Well, eventually, once you invent to a particular point, 
you start to recognize, well, that's just the way we're going to end up doing it in the future. Like, you know, why are you going to spend, you know, 10 times more to go replant an area and do it 100 times slower? Like, why would you choose to do that? Why would you choose to spend more and do it more slowly? And similarly, like once you have an electric car that does everything that a car does, you don't need to worry about range. It's easy for you to recharge because we figured out how to do home charging easily, et cetera, et cetera. And the price gets down to be the same or lower price than a comparable internal combustion engine car. Why would you do the dirtier, more expensive and, you know, you have to pay for gas all the time option. That's why people are going after Tesla, because there's a point where you beat unit economics so squarely, you know that that's what the future is going to look like. And that's basically what we're trying to do in all these areas where we kind of shake up industry to become more of a net positive to nature. Wow. This is one of the most inspiring conversations I've had. And, And you've given us so much hope, so much hope for the future. And I'm looking at the comments which are coming in. People are so excited about this. We have 500 people live right now. How big is the fund? The target size is to be between 100 and 150 million. We've raised 81.5 so far. So there's room That's for amazing. like another 20 to 50. Or if I want to go all the way to 150, then there's room for another a little bit less than 70. That is amazing. That is amazing. And you're the founder of the fund. Yeah, I'm the founder and managing partner. That's beautiful. I'd love to know what, because you were doing so many different projects in your life. What was that shift that made you move in this direction? Just everything started dying. (laughs) My my coral reef in Hawaii, my wife and I have had a place in Hawaii since 2006. And Mm -hmm. we used to live right next to this beautiful coral reef. In 2011, I watched it go from every color of the rainbow and countless fish in every direction that you look to gray and brown and no fish and happened just over the course of like two, two and a half months. And we lived out in the countryside. We weren't near any industry. Like this wasn't like, oh, the neighborhood screwed up the reefs. This was, we warmed up the whole planet and it screwed up the reefs. I did not know how urgent the issue was until the one right next to my house died. And then I started reaching out to various coral scientists and I found out that there was massive bleaching across all of the Hawaiian islands that year. And then I found out that that year, 10% of all reefs in the entire world died. And I was like, whoa, if you lose 10% per year, how much time do we have left? And they're like, well, you know, we don't have massive bleaching every single year, but like when we are having it now, we might lose 5, 10, 15% of all coral on the planet. And then we might have two years of rest and it trying to come back. And then we hit it with another year of intensive bleaching. And the reason that coral scientists are estimating that we will extinct all of coral in like a 30 to 35 year time frame is that's the point in the graph where we've warmed the ocean to the point where every year is a bleaching year. It means that there's no more recovery time. And it's just a matter of two, three years after the point where every year is a bleaching year before you've extincted all coral. It's so inspiring that there is hope. There is hope. And It's crazy that we spend $721 billion on the military when the greatest threat facing us right now is a dying planet. Yeah. And I mean, that's just the U.S. military. I'm not even looking at China or Russia or Germany, which are billions more. But it sounds like there is so much that we can do. And we have have the capacity. We have the technology. We're just lacking the will. No, I think actually we have a bunch of will, too. It's just we pointed it at everybody marching in the street. And I'm not saying stop marching Mm. in the street. I'm saying 
also ask your scientists and engineers and designers and all the folks to do the thing that they're good at. A bunch of my friends were in Paris as the Paris Climate Accord was coming together. And a bunch of them were scientists and engineers. And I saw them, you know, in social media, you know, in the streets, you know, cheering. You know, it's beautiful. It's great. And also, with the minds that they have, they could have been building the robot to plant coral reefs or to restore right. forests or to but, you know, quickly understand the health of, of soils or to be able to, to measure and Im- improve hydrological cycles, including ones that we don't pay deep attention to. So, so for example, groundwater cycles. Like These are things and, that if you tell an engineer, figure out how to do this, and you give them a little capital in five years, I mean, a team, then they'll work it out. But one of the things right now is, and this is a very uniquely American thing, many Americans believe that global warming isn't real. Because I was having a conversation. They also with, believe uh, with, the world is 6,000 years old, and that's wrong, but that right. didn't prevent us from fixing a lot of problems, too. But when the president believes it, when the president believes it, right, that can really affect policy and where funding goes. I was talking to a very intelligent friend of mine who is a big proponent of the president, and we're still friends, but he really doesn't believe in global warming. He believes it's all a myth. Is that something important to address? No. Like, let him be. Yeah, I was an angel investor before I was a professional investor. Mm -hmm. And way back in the day when I was investing in renewable energy related activities primarily, I was tracking that space real closely, you know, rooting on wind and solar in various ways and the supporting technologies to have more of it. And I remember, you know, watching the cost per kilowatt generation for wind and solar Mm -hmm. continue to track down, down, down until it was finally competitive with coal natural gas, you know, these fossil fuel-based ways of generating. And during that time period, I was like traveling around and seeing how this stuff was coming together. And I was visiting a wind farm development project and, you know, the turbines were coming up and I was, you know, walking and talking with the developer. And actually about 10 minutes into the conversation, I was like, this person is a climate denier. For sure, they're a climate denier. I'm a curious person. So instead of being like, why are you so fucked up? right? Which is, I don't know, the way that people treat this situation often. I was kind of like, oh, hey, it sounds like you're not that keen on climate change. You're like, well, I don't know. I'm just really skeptical. I don't really believe the, you know, if you look at this other data, I was like, okay, cool. Well, what's inspiring you then to put up so many megawatts of wind generation? And they're like, well, my family came up in oil and gas, and we know how to do project finance. We know how to make money from offtake agreements. And this is how you make money these days. And I was like, that's amazing, right? Because basically what happened was a technical innovation changed the economics. Right. And it didn't even matter what you believed. Now, the folks right. that like, were passionate were really important because they bought it before the economics worked mm-hmm. out. And that allowed us to be on a trajectory to keep on improving those economics. But once it kind of crossed into a threshold, it just didn't matter what you believed anymore. But it means that everybody's important. The folks that are real passion early on are the right. ones that will be the early buyers of the tech. And then the ones that help to go drive that technological improvement cycle by which we improve the economics, improve the efficacy until it gets to a level of potency where it just has to be the way that we do things. Amazing. Amazing. Tom, thank you so much for inspiring us. This was an incredible conversation. I'm going to follow up with you regarding the fund. I'm interested in investing. And not only that, I want Mindvalley to start supporting these companies. This is so cool, Tom. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening and want to follow up with Tom and read about his projects, go to atoneventures.com. 
That's A-T-O-N-E-Ventures.com. And our guest today is Tom Chi. Google him, a remarkable mind. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.